Well, uh, really good to be here. If you have your Bibles, grab them, go to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we are in the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, this has been a, just a great study to walk through. And uh, if you're just visiting, new, curious about Jesus, or with a friend, or been here a couple times and aren't used to kind of the, the diet here, um, this is very simply just a worship service where we love to worship Jesus. And Jesus is the one who we believe came and was God and was man and died for sin and was buried and rose and validated all the necessary requirements for uh, a righteous, holy God towards sinners. And so we, we sing to Jesus. Uh, like we were just doing the talk about Jesus, about who he is, what he's done, about why we can stand before him, why we can interact with him, why we can converse with him, why we can have fellowship with him. We teach the scriptures, which uh, we call also the Bible, um, where we just kind of take books of the Bible and walk through them and, and see what the Bible has to say and reveal about this God and about this Jesus. And we also worship him by being generous, by giving. Uh, if you guys consider this your church home, you know we give in the small black box in the back. And many of you guys give online as well. And again, just continue to say thank you for your faithfulness in that way. Um, that has just helped us carry this, this mission forward. So um, we're going to jump into uh, Luke chapter 2. I, I also just want to apologize. I know a number of you wrote me this week asking for the sermon from last week. Uh, we had some technical difficulties. And uh, I had like only the back half sermon due to a... Uh, information that you wouldn't understand anyways that has to do with audio and sound. So uh, anyways, I'm going to try to recap a little bit of last week to lead you into this week, but God's faithful. Uh, it'll just show you never miss church again. So uh, you never know what can happen. No, but, uh, but I know that, that some, of you, some of you also were serving in, the back, or, uh, in children, so I just apologize. I'm going to actually try to get my notes up so you guys can have those just to uh, see what we kind of walked through last week. But last week was very exciting because what we saw last week was the Christmas story. So uh, last week was where we um, just saw that, that Jesus finally came, that all the promises that were uh, for Israel and ultimately going to be for the world in Jesus, in his saving uh, life and his saving death and his saving resurrection, he kind of came. What we did was we kind of dismantled a little bit a lot of the preconceived notions, maybe cultural concepts that are, that are off. So we saw some fun things like the innkeeper. Innkeeper didn't exist in the Bible, so I don't know why we have cantatas and plays that show the angry innkeeper kicking out Mary and Joseph. According to the Bible, we don't know that that really happened. What we do know was there was a census taken, and so we know there were a lot of Roman officials there, a lot of Jewish officials there. We know that there wasn't a lot of room at the end, so they had to find somewhere else to lay Jesus when he was born, and we saw that it was actually done in a feeding trough. So our nice little pictures of the manger with hay and all the animals around almost kind of cooing at him is really not what it was like. He was sitting where they would have eaten. He was sitting where they would have drank and, and, and where they would have parked their automobiles, which was their animal. Okay, so next to motels, there was a parking lot for us. Well, in the olden days, you know, back in Jesus' time, there was a, a stable or places to tie your donkeys with troughs because that's where they would park their animals. And so it was a humiliating situation. It was a humble situation. We see that as the angels are waiting for centuries upon centuries to declare this great message of salvation to the world through this Messiah, you'd think they'd go to somewhere prominent. you think a royal king would get a wonderful announcement and all the invitations go, would go out to the richest and wealthiest. And where do they first go? To a field with shepherds, the lowest of the low. They proclaim who he is. The shepherds go there. They're talking about and marveling at it, seeing Mary and Joseph. And then we see that as the course of time goes on that Jesus is going to grow up. Jesus is going to save people. People are going to notice who he is. He's going to reveal himself in the ways that he wants. And, and here was one of the kind of key hinges last week was we saw that Jesus is coming 
predominantly to save, right? The, the announcement from the angels on Christmas morning was, he has come to save and he is Christ the Lord. And, and here's what I want to make sure we understand because it's going to roll a little bit into this morning is, you have to understand what he's saving you from. We talked about misconceptions about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there are two main ones I walk through with you. One is that we think Jesus came to save us from lack of fulfillment. Okay, that's very common in the evangelical world. So we think that you're unfulfilled in your job, you're unfulfilled in your marriage, you're just kind of unfulfilled in life, you have ambitions, you have dreams, you have wants, you have desires. So if you trust Jesus, he'll save you from lack of fulfillment and just give you purpose. Okay, that alone still leaves you damned to hell. So that's not a good thing. Then we looked at the other one that is, okay, he kind of saves us from these dismantling ambitions or vices. So you've got a debilitating passion in your life. You, you've got this anger you can't kill. You've got this lust you can't avoid. You have this addiction, whether it's alcoholism or, or something else or drug abuse. And so you think Jesus predominantly came to save you from that vice and then just give you self-control over it. Well, the problem with that is you're still damned and going to hell. So, so both those things are bad. We saw those, those are not universal. Because there are people that have tremendous self-control. There are people I know who have more self-control over Christians I know who can live a really good upright life according to the world's standard. Right? They don't do a whole lot of bad things, don't have many vices. They've actually reached their ambitions and dreams. They feel fulfilled, living on a beach, got ten houses, they're good. They got their stock away. Everything's good for them as far as fulfillment. So we learned that it's not that Jesus came to die for just the outward actions of our sinfulness. Okay, he came to die to rescue from the nature of sin. You have to understand that. Okay, what that means is you intrinsically are helplessly broken. Okay, so we saw in Romans 1 how he talks about how we now want to be God, how we think we're smarter than God, how we blaspheme God, and how we actually need to be saved. We need to be made new. We don't just need band-aids. We don't just need reconstructive surgery. He needs to come in and actually make you brand new, give you a new nature. Okay, and this is why this is so important that whether you're the crazy wicked pagan or ultra-religious guy, you both fall on the same place that aren't good enough. Right? So that, that's why this is so important to get that the gospel saves you from what's wrong in your nature, in your wiring. So if you don't understand that you by nature are born by choice and the way that you're built to rebel against God and not want to obey him and not want to please him and want to be the God of your life and wanting to have control, that you won't see what he's done for you as good or pleasing or glorifying. You won't worship him because you'll either land on the side of, well, I can just keep doing stuff, get self-controlled, feel fulfilled, and then I don't really need his sacrifice or, okay, well, yeah, I'm, I'm really wicked, so God just saves me to make me better. Both those places are bad. Okay, we need a brand new heart. You need a brand new mind. Okay, and that's what he killed on the cross. And that's what he fulfilled in his righteous requirement through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. You needed, you needed all of it. Right, so we said no matter how religious you are, you're still going to found lacking on the day of judgment against a holy God. Right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you are. So it doesn't matter who you are in this room, the gospel just levels the playing field for us. The, the Bible will even go as far to say that, that your greatest works, right, are what? It's filthy rags. Right? People say that all the time. Well, that's just him trying to get us to understand that there's nothing you can do to be righteous. There's nothing you can do. So instead of reverting from our wicked ways to being better, and this is why you hear often in church, or even on, I, I just heard it this morning on Christian radio. I mean, I'm not, I'm not bashing Christian radio. I think there's a few good things on there, but I, I, there, there's, there's this, this lady that called in and said, hey, man, I just... After listening, yeah, I just, I feel so much better about myself. That's what we're talking about. That's the very thing I was just talking about. I just feel better. 
Okay, well, feeling better about yourself still isn't saving, right? I mean, you're just feeling better and having a bit more self-esteem does not save you from the wrath of God towards sinful, broken, finite creatures. In light of his holiness, we need to be made new. Okay, and so Jesus, praise God, he's the worthy sacrifice. Praise God, he's our high priest. Praise God, he's the lamb. We're going to see that a lot as he enters the temple this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 2. Where we land this morning is Jesus is starting to, he's, he's, he's been alive for about probably 40 days or more. We're going to see why. So he's a young baby. He's probably six weeks old. Okay, and he's, he's not fully, you know, growing into a young boy yet. He's still a little child. And uh, Mary and Joseph are going to carry him to the temple. And we're going to see why. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, this section of the Gospels we're pretty unfamiliar with. We're it's kind of not very common to us. These three characters we're going to see are not really normal to our vocabulary. And I think God's going to teach us some beautiful things in here. So um, let's see as they play this crucial role in the life of Jesus, the long-awaited Savior. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, that's Mary and Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so out of the gate, here's just what I want you to know. We're going to just kind of walk through this story, see the events, look at them, and then at the end try to tie it up, put a bow on it, seeing why this is so significant that Jesus is entering the temple, okay? So, so here's where we start, okay? So Mary and Joseph are making about a week's journey to the temple, and Luke says there's two reasons why they're coming. Apparently a sacrifice needs to be given, and apparently also there's a purification that needs to happen. So here's what you need to know according to Jewish law, and this is why they're doing this, okay? When a woman would give birth, they had to go get purification after 40 days. The reason they did this was because they wanted her to understand how sinful she was even at her highest moment in glory. She actually produced a life. Okay, so it was God's way of saving. Even, even when you do something miraculous, even when you do something great, you're still sinful. Okay, you still need cleansing. And so they couldn't touch anything that was holy. They couldn't go near the temple. They couldn't do anything like that. And so it's now been 40 days and Mary's going to get purification and she's also going to present Jesus to the Lord. So in Jewish law, in the Mosaic law, was that every firstborn would be presented to the Lord. Okay, this is very simply like a child dedication. Okay, you know we do those here, how we, we have our children, and then we present them to the Lord. We say, hey, Lord, he's yours. Hey, Lord, help me grow him and raise him in the ways of the Lord. Help me to pray over him. Help me help him, right? So that, that's what's going on. There's going to be a child dedication ceremony for Jesus at the temple, okay? So they're making their way there. They're, they're walking to the temple, and a lot of that you can find in Leviticus 12. And according to Exodus 13, you'll also see where they love to present the child to the Lord. You might know your Old Testament well. You might think of Hannah. She takes Samuel, presents him to the Lord. This is very common, okay? This is common throughout redemptive history. So Mary and Joseph, they're not doing anything new. They're just taking their baby Jesus to the temple to participate in these things like any Jewish family would. Now, when you think about this for a second, if there's any child to entrust to the Lord, it's this one. I mean, he is literally his, right? I mean, yes, in Christ we're all his children, but, but Jesus is the son of God. Right, I mean, he, he is his son. And so this is oozing with irony, okay, as you're seeing Jesus be brought to the temple who is the son of God to be presented to God who is his very own son. And so 
as he brings him up, as Mary's been ceremonially unclean, couldn't go to the temple, is facing her sinfulness, she's holding in her arms the final sacrifice, right? I mean, so we talked a lot about the new covenant, old covenant. We're going to see that throughout this gospel. But, I mean, what does the new covenant say? Draw near to God and he'll what? Draw near to you. That's what James says, right? Well, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament covenant said this, hey, don't get near until bloodshed. And then the new covenant says, hey, the bloodshed, come on in. Right, so she's actually carrying in her arms, okay, she's carrying the final sacrifice into the temple, which is going to inaugurate the old covenant, the new covenant. I mean, I mean, understand, the Son of God entering the temple of God is huge. Okay, this is, this is monumental, this is extraordinary, this is in redemptive history, this is the, the door hinge of history almost, as we see Jesus being brought in as a baby, which is why he goes back later, we're going to see that in weeks to come, as, as a young boy. And then he goes back even later, when he was growing up in his ministry, and then you'll see there this weird, it says sacrifice was two turtle doves or pigeons. You're going, turtle doves and pigeons? You lost me. I mean, why in the world are they bringing this? Well, here, very simply, if you go back to Leviticus 12, here, here's what was going on. If, if you were poor, this is kind of an exception clause for the poor. If you were poor, you could give birds as your offering. Okay, you needed two, one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. So that was kind of like, okay, I'm not making a whole lot. So right off the gate, what do we know? Mary and Joseph are relatively poor, right? Okay, so they, they need some. Now, if you're in the wealthy class, if you're in the higher class, you could bring a lamb. Okay, so the, the really wealthy would bring a lamb. They'd lay it on the altar. They would atone for the sin. So this is showing us now, this is not a sermon, just a thought. I actually don't think the wise men came yet. I think there's another misconception we have that, that they came as he was in the feeding trough and we were looking at him all huddled around, right? Every manger scene has what? The shepherds, all the animals, the nice hotel, somehow a stable, right? And then we have not a feeding trough, man. He's got nice linens. He's got, you know, epidurals waiting. He's got everything like a normal nurse's thing would have. It looks nothing like that. And then we have the wise men sitting there. Well, if they had had all those gifts from the wise men, any Jewish family would have brought their best, so if they didn't have the frankincense, myrrh, and all those gifts, why are they bringing two doves and pigeons? So, so that's why I just, anyways, that's just for the side. We can talk about that some other time. But, but here they come. They're, they're middle class. They're poor. I think the wise men come a little bit later. It's only been about a month, so it's, it makes sense that they had to make that journey all the way from the east to actually get to Jesus. So maybe now you can throw out the wise men in your manger. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. You're not a pagan if you have those. It's, it's, it could still be true. So, so here's what's going on. So as they're walking, as they're poor, they're bringing their different sacrifices up to Jesus. And, and here, here's what I, I think is just incredible is they're bringing this to atone for sin. Another ironic piece of this is the baby she's carrying is ultimately going to save her from her sins. His future death will do what these animals cannot do. So you've got to see that through the, through the thread of all this. So as they're presenting Jesus, look at what happens in verse 25. Some unusual events start to occur. And you've got these two unique people, Sim- Simeon and Anna. Okay, we're going to look at Simeon first. As they're presenting Jesus to God, this is what happens. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, before he had seen Jesus. So this guy, Simeon, knows, okay, before I die, somehow the Holy Spirit revealed to him, I'm going to see the Messiah. 
came, I'm going to see who he is. This long-awaited, all the Old Testament longings that were just building up in his heart. Man, he's going, I'm going to see this. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know where. He just knows God has promised that to him and revealed it through the Holy Spirit. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. That's not mystically. He's not a mirage. He's not floating. He's in the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit of God. He's being compelled by the Spirit of God. And he enters the temple in the spirit, and when the parents brought in the child to Jesus to do for him according to custom of the law, present him to God, child dedication, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That literally means to die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This scene is insane. Okay? Listen. Picture, I don't know, some of you guys did child education recently. Picture you, Mary and Joseph, bringing up Jesus to present him in the temple, and some guy comes over, grabs your child out of your arms, and starts prophesying over him and declaring crazy things. I mean, what would happen in our context? Probably be locked up and taken out of here, right? I mean, you'd probably be like, you can't just grab kids. You can't do that. So this is really crazy. I mean, Simeon just walks up, grabs his boy. He's elated with joy, just starts proclaiming that he is the consolation of Israel, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And Mary and Joseph, you're going to see, just start marveling at it. Going, what in the world is going on here? So you see this happen as, as they're walking up. He comes over. This man loves God. He has the Holy Spirit of God. He's praising God that he can die in peace. And here's what he's revealing. Simeon's revealing there's some sort of alignment that has to happen for him to then be able to just die in peace. Like, 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 and, and I think what he's alluding to is that, that the Son of God has to enter the temple of God and inaugurate this new covenant. That there's permanent salvation. That sacrificial system will be done away with. That there will be a high priest who is ours. No longer the best priest by tradition. He was not holy in light of God's holiness. But holy just in light of tradition. Who could go into the holy place and present that sacrifice once a year. That man there is a better Messiah. A better priest. A better sacrifice coming. And he's here. And so Simeon sees it in Jesus. Like he sees. He's going man this inauguration just walked into the temple. It's this baby. He's so excited, he just grabs Jesus out of Mary's arms. And he just holds him up going, man, I can die now in peace. Well, all that God said I would see, I'm seeing in the temple today. This is absolutely incredible. And so he's showing this fulfillment of the old covenant and the new, all the promises, all the prophecy, the Davidic, the Abraham covenant, all that Moses' law couldn't fulfill. He's seen it all in Jesus, this righteous boy who would live and die and rise. He's, he's seen it all as the Holy Spirit has revealed it to him, and he just starts praising God. And so he realizes that he's holding God who was made man. That's what he realizes. Now that's the antithesis of the lie, right, post-Genesis 3, that, that man and women become gods and that every major religious system will teach that, that we're supposed to become a god and do works to attain God and ascend to God. Where No, Simeon realizes God came to us and I'm holding him. The, the God of the universe became a man and he's in my arms. And he says something profound here. He says, let me die in peace for my eyes have seen What? salvation that what you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the gentiles and for glory to your people israel this is huge simeon is 
unveiling to Mary and Joseph's eyes that their son is not just the Savior of Israel. <laughs> you got to understand, it's already miraculous to Mary and Joseph that this baby is, let alone the Savior of Israel, God's people. But now he's unveiling back, this isn't just an Israel thing, this is a global thing. This is a light to the Gentiles, that's you and me, who aren't in the line of, of, of Jewish heritage, okay? So there's still Messianic Jews who believe in Jesus, who trust Jesus, right? I mean, th this is amazing. So Mary and Joseph, in the middle of their child dedication ceremony, are having to wrap their minds around this Jesus is much bigger and his salvation is much more glorious and more all-encompassing than just the nation of Israel. I mean, this is going to spread throughout the globe. Now you can understand why when Luke writes Acts, he's so excited. I mean, what is the whole book of Acts? This gospel advancing to the Gentiles. This gospel permeating all the way through the Roman Empire, right? I mean, the same writer who's, who's documenting this is documenting Acts. So you see the same passion later in Acts. So he's seeing that, man, Revelation 7 with every tribe, every tongue, every people will be before the throne of God, praising him for his glorious name, for how holy he is, for how saving he is. Man, this isn't just an Israel thing. They can't believe it. This is what Simeon is revealing to them. So natural reaction. Look at verse 33. What did Mary and Joseph do? And his father and his mother, what? Marvel. At what's being said about him. They're marveling. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So, Mary and Joseph are marveling at all of this. All these things are beginning to take shape with the birth of their son. The birth alone was incredible for them, right? I mean, we've been walking through that with Zachariah's promise, the forerunner John the Baptist, and with Mary and Joseph, the promise from Gabriel to her. I mean, this thing is being opened up, and I mean, just, it's, it's like every couple steps they get, there's more to be seen of Jesus. There's more to be said about him. There's more greatness ahead of him, right? And, and here you see them marveling at what they're saying, now, now understand, they're, they're, standing, they're standing in the temple ground. Okay, this is Herod's temple. There are thousands of people, thousands, all around, okay? This one random elder man kind of comes up, grabs their baby, and starts praising God. They're kind of sitting there in the bunker almost, listening to this, looking all around them, and they're just two common teenagers, 13, 14, 15, they're, 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 according to us, like children. So this isn't like, you know, 33-year-old adult. They've got some life experience behind them. They've got their kid. They're kind of listening to Simeon, documenting it, journaling. No, these guys, they're just two kids going, this is insane. Common, ordinary, middle, low class. They're just bringing Jesus in for his presentation. And all of a sudden, God is unveiling so much more about their child. And I, I just see in here as this is going on, I feel, like, I feel like Mary's sitting there looking at Jesus going, I know that, I know he is the son of God. Like I know he's going to take away sin. I know he's the promised one throughout the Old Testament longings to the people of Israel. But hold on a second. Our son is not 
just for Israel. Like, are you, are you telling me our son is, is his death, his salvation, his all-encompassing work is going to stretch across the globe? Do you see how they're just trying to take this in? How they're marveling at all that is being declared to them. And their amazement is just continuing to grow throughout his birth. And, and I, I feel like they're sitting here and they know all these promises. They knew that he was miraculously conceived. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the promise to be the son of David. They knew he would have a kingdom that would never end. They knew according to Abraham that he would be the one who comes and blesses all nations. They knew that because of him, the, the visible witness of his people, which is his church, would be even a brighter testimony. Like they're knowing all these things. They're going, wait, this is going to expand and grow and stretch. Like remember when Habakkuk said that his glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea? Do you think that also had to do with salvation in a sense? They're just walking through all of these thoughts and their mind can't handle it, and they're just looking down going, our child, our son. And as they're marveling, look, Simeon turns to Mary, and he says something really profound to Mary. The reason this is important that he looks at Mary and says this is because this isn't for Joseph. Because Joseph, from all we know, isn't going to be alive shortly after this. Right? I mean, at Jesus' inauguration of his whole ministry when he's 30, Joseph's nowhere to be found. Mary's there. At Jesus' death, Mary's there. Joseph's nowhere to be found. Resurrection, same thing. I mean, so something happens to Joseph. We don't really know. It's likely that he died. But this is why Simeon looks at Mary and says, your boy will grow up to be a man who's the center of controversy, the center of opposition, the center of strife. You see that? She looks at and says, this child will be appointed as the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed. So she's going, hold up a second. I've loved all the happy talk, right? Fulfillment, promises, saving. What do you mean opposition? What do you mean sword? What do you mean people aren't going to like him? And, and as he's declaring all of this, He's saying to Mary, you know what, you're going to be there when it all goes south. When the rejection starts, yeah, you're going to be there. Do you know that human history is going to divide over this guy? And, and literally our calendar divides over his life and death? B.C. and A.D.? D did you know that he's going to be the dividing line of human history? Do you know that even today at the Temple Mount, he is the dividing line that people argue over who Jesus is? I mean, you've got the Jews there at the Wailing Wall believing one thing. You've got the Christians there at the Temple believing one thing. You've got a Muslim mosque off to the left, you know, kind of corner inside believing another thing. All around who? Jesus. I mean, so Simeon is prophesying what's true today that this guy is going to bring opposition. Not everyone's going to like him. There are people going to rise with salvation who trust in his name. People will fall out into damnation who disregard his name. Man, this baby is going to be the door hinge of human history. And is he not? I mean, hundreds of years ago with this Simeon, just an obscure... Just think about that. I always say, get in the story. Get in the story. Get in the story. I mean, here we are in the temple with thousands of people, and Simeon is declaring something profound, right? 
I guarantee you there are people around probably going, what the heck? What's Simeon saying? What a lunatic, right? That baby, Messiah, what's he talking about? And they're taking it all in. He's saying lots of hearts are going to be revealed as to who he really is. And even through the division and strife, people are going to come to trust in Christ. And, and, and you, Mary, a sword's going to figuratively pierce through your side. You're going to watch your own son die a heart-wrenching death. You have no idea what's ahead of you. You have no idea what's to come. Powerful, weighty, beautiful. So Mary and Joseph basically have two things that are shocking them at this point. Number one, our baby's not just a savior to Israel but to the world. And, and number two, history is going to be divided over him. Human history. School systems, government. It's all happened. It's all happening, right? Some just some guy that came up to Jesus in the temple courtyards, said it would happen. On a nice day in Jerusalem, 75 and sunny. Right? Probably. I don't have any biblical reason for that. So in the middle of all this, another character enters the scene. Really important, this lady Anna. Okay, so you got Simeon who comes over, and you got Anna who comes in, 36. And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Devout, loved the Lord. Never left. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. Coming up at that very hour, where? To Mary, Joseph, and Simeon. She's coming up to them at that very hour. She began to give thanks to God for what she's seeing, for what she's experiencing, and speak to him, to, and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Okay, so this lady who's devoted to God, she is praying for the kingdom of God to come. She is praying for God's promises to be fulfilled. She's praying for the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant to be fulfilled, and this one is to come, this Jesus. She is longing for the Old Testament promises for her people to be fulfilled. She's longing for redemption, okay? And all of a sudden, I don't know, Simeon probably knew her, okay? Because here's one thing I want you to understand. All throughout the Old Testament, there is what I would call the remnant of Israel, Okay, what that means is there were some people, as the Old Testament went, as Israel had their obedience and their sacrifices, and then failings and fallings and rinse and repeat and sacrifices again and failings and fallings and trying to be obedient and all that over and over and over, there was a remnant that always knew it was going to be by grace through faith alone. There was. I mean, there were people who knew, okay, Abraham was saved by faith. It was credited him as righteousness. So there were some people who weren't naive and weren't thinking, okay, well, this, these sacrifices alone are what forgive me. Okay, their minds were open up to there is a deliverer coming. I, I hear all these promises. I hear about the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic promise. I, I, I know that the Old Testament speaks to a deliverer to come. I know Isaiah 53. I know Psalm 51. I know Psalm 46. I know all these other places in the Bible that are talking about this perfect lamb who will be slain for my sins. So I believe Anna and Simeon and many others were, were, were part of this remnant that I would say are, are, the, are the faith remnant who always believed in grace through faith alone. So, so here Anna, who, who has understood that, comes over and sees that redemption is here. She's going, man, I've been praying and fasting every day, every night, waiting. Is he coming? 
Is he coming? Is redemption here? Is redemption here? Is the sacrificial system done away with? Is our high priest here? And she sees Jesus. She sees him. She's going, he's here. Like, like, her belief is enacted. I mean, the faith was credited, credited righteousness to her in that moment, even though it would be a future death that would save her. And she's just looking at this child going, the hour's here. Redemption's here. Of course now she goes and wants to tell everyone. See, the last text right there, she began to speak of every, to everyone about him who was what? Waiting for his redemption. Those who were longing for this. This is just incredible that she comes in, sees this as thousands of people are milling around in the temple courts. She just starts telling everybody. She understood this as she's 84 years old saying the Messiah has come. Here he is. Of course she would tell everyone that the promises are being fulfilled. That the inauguration of the new covenant and old covenant is happening. That, that the Son of God is at the temple of God right now. And, and here's what just on a side note what I find interesting. I find it interesting that in the middle of all these people milling around, two recognize him and worship him as the Messiah. Two elderly, obscure people see Jesus, worship Jesus, and everybody else around they're just drooling over babies. Normal child dedication at the temple. They're bringing their kids. He looked like a normal baby, looked like every other baby. But two knew this isn't just another baby. This isn't just another child. This child is a savior of all things. This child is the God in human flesh. This is Jesus, the Christ, who is Lord. Amazing. Verse 39, Luke wraps up this scene. And then we're going to just add with some thought, end with some thoughts. As these two elderly are worshiping Jesus, and you have all the educated, all the religious around him just drooling over babies, minding their own business, doing their religious activity, oblivious to the king. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, why'd they do that? One, because they loved God, loved his law. Right? David says, man, law tastes sweet when you understand what its purpose is. When you understand, why would I have any other gods? He's the one who saved me, loved me, ransomed me. They're also doing everything according to the law of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect fulfiller of the law. We said that's why he got circumcised. Because from his circumcision, eight weeks old, to living his whole perfect life, he fully upholds the law of God. Like he doesn't miss a beat. We're going to see that even in obeying God next week and obeying his parents. So, so here he is. They obey the law of the Lord perfectly according to the law because that is what Jesus had to do to be the righteous fulfillment, the righteous requirement of a holy, righteous God on our behalf. They returned into Galilee to their town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Here's what's interesting. I don't know if you're frustrated by this. That that's kind of like, we get this now missing gap till like he starts his ministry. I mean, yes, we're going to see him as a boy in the temple next week. But by and large, it pretty much takes a break and then we start as around his age of 30 with his ministry. But, but here's a few things that the Bible gives us. Here's a few things that Luke gives us. In other places say he grew in stature, favor with God and man. 
We know that he grew spiritually, loved the scriptures, grew in prayer, loved the word of God. We knew he grew in favor with God and man, that he would go to the temple. And even though everyone nearby around him was predominantly illiterate, here's a young boy who's literate, who's understanding amazing, heady knowledge. And they all, all of a sudden start calling him rabbi. When he has really no vindication, no educational background to call him that. He's respected. He's shown favor. He grows in wisdom. He begins to continue to understand his calling and, and the things of God and who he is as the son of God. We see that he just continues to grow into manhood and adolescence. He grows physically just like any other boy. He grows into maturity. Starts getting facial hair. Right? Armpit hair. It's like, did everything that we did. People will just, we're going to see ahead, people are just amazed at him. Just amazed at his ability. Amazed at what he says. Amazed at what he does. Here's where I want to tile this up and, and just give a little backdrop so we can kind of understand the weight now of all the events coming through of why it was so significant that Jesus comes into the temple. I think there are just kind of two main things I want us to, well, three maybe, but two main things I want us to see. Number one is that the reason people would come to the temple was because they would come to the temple acknowledging before a holy, righteous God that according to over the 600 commands they had read in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, according to the law of Moses, they'd broken them all. They'd failed. They were sinful. That the law of God that he gave predominantly wound up in the Ten Commandments, which is all that is right and good according to God, right? Summed up in the great commandment, which is love God and love your neighbor. Okay, that, that, that all that was for them to come and say, man, something is broken in me. I, I can't do this. I'm not righteous enough, so I need blood to be shed because that's the requirement for the sin that I've committed. So I have to have it atoned for. So that's why people would come to the temple. Okay, here's, here's the other piece that, that I want us to see is that, is that as people would come to the temple, as they understood Psalm 51, that by nature and choice you're a sinner, Against God only have I sinned. They knew the Old Testament. They knew what David had said. As they come to the temple, the holiest man according to tradition, okay, not holiest man according to the God of the universe. No one's holy next to him. But according to tradition, the holiest man who was the high priest would go into the holy place, the only place the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was where he would basically celebrate the atonement for the sins of the people and he would bring what two goats the substitute and the scapegoat the substitute was that he would confess the sins of the people lay it on the the substituted goat he would slaughter it the blood that was shed would represent the shedding of blood that would atone for their sin and then he would also confess the sins over what would be the scapegoat which represents the one who takes away condemnation takes away guilt and he would let it free and let it run away Okay, so those are what's going on in the temple. This is why the temple was there. This is why it existed. Here's another reason the temple was there. Because it, it gave access to the people with God. It's where they commune with God. You want to go sing? You want to go pray? You go to the temple. You want to have, like, fellowship with him? Not, obviously, he's not limited to a box or a temple. That's where he put his presence. So this is all swirling around the temple, the meaning of the temple, why the temple is happening, why all these things are happening. You know, the, the poorest people would, would use their life savings to take a trip there. Like, this is how sacred it was. This is how huge it was. 
I mean, we, we save up 10 years to go to Aruba or like, I don't know, Europe or something. Man, they'd say, man, I'm going to the temple. Where do you want to go on vacation? We're going to the temple. Sacred, holy, weighty, beautiful. This is where we want to go. This is what we want to do. So th this is all that is happening in the temple, the holy place. And we learned a lot about this in Zechariah 1. So now reading this account as Mary ascends up the stairs to the temple, carrying Jesus. Walks into the outer courtyard, thousands of people, chaos, people milling around as she enters in with Jesus. Who is she carrying? She is holding in her hands the substitute and the scapegoat. Like, she is carrying the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. She's holding in her hands. I mean, this, the magnitude of Jesus entering into the temple of the Son of God, or temple of God as the Son of God, is, is so beyond comparison in weight. I mean, we can't even comprehend the gravity of this happening. So as she carries him in, and as he is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system, he's the entire fulfillment of the priesthood, he's the entire fulfillment of the whole reason the temple exists, he's the whole fulfillment of the entire reason that atonement and sacrifices and all these things were given, that people would come and wander. He, he's it. He's being carried into the very place where he will eventually say it is finished on the cross, the veil will be torn, he'll be made our high priest. This is why when you guys walk in this room, you don't bring pigeons, you don't bring turtle doves, you don't bring lambs, you don't need any of those things. Why? Because Jesus died. Okay, that's why you come into this room without bringing a single sacrifice. That's why you don't need a high priest to access God, because you have Jesus who is your high priest. You enter the Holy of Holies. I mean, this is, this is why you don't need a new temple. You don't need a new temple built to go worship God. Because you're made the new temple when the Holy Spirit indwells you, when he saves you and gifts you. He says, this body now, we are his living, active temple. It's not made with human hands anymore. It's made by the God of the universe in saving and redeeming a people for his glory. So even us sitting in this room worshiping Jesus is because of this day where Simeon told Mary and Joseph, hey, you know who this baby is? And Anna's telling people all around the courtyard, I know you can't see into the future yet, this is how people are going to worship God. In freedom, because Jesus did away with all of that, he's our mediator. So you don't need another sacrifice. You don't need more blood. You don't need a high priest. You don't need a temple. You need Jesus. Like the sinful, broken world, the nature of sin that he came to save us from is all wrapped up in his person and work. So he goes to Golgotha, he dies on the cross, he bears all the weight of sin, he actually becomes sin for you. All the wrath of God to be on you that you could not stand for a millisecond without being disintegrated, right? Because of the weight of his holiness and glory, he bears all that for you and then you're free because he takes his righteousness. We talk about the beauty of justification, declared righteousness, that he actually gives that to you the righteous requirement of a truly holy high priest, which is only God, not the high priest that went in the holy place. And he becomes your substitute for sin. He's that, that lamb, that perfect, unblemished lamb. That lamb that his blood just covers over your sin. You confess your sin to him. He's faithful and just. He forgives you of your sin. And then he's also your scapegoat. He takes all your condemnation, all your guilt, all your shame, and says, I took it out. 
East is from the West. It's gone. He, he, he was both for you. So Mary is holding in her hands the righteous requirement of the law, the substitute, the scapegoat, having no idea what Jesus would do and how he would graft people to himself. That it would stretch to the ends of the earth, that this message would be proclaimed and taught and told and people would go and be sent. That churches would be built up as local assemblies upon this name of her baby alone. That the people would no longer need all those things. She can't handle it. Joseph can't handle it. This is why John's going to say, hey, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That's why Paul's going to say, hey, Christ, our Passover Lamb, hey, he was killed. He was killed. He was slaughtered. He rose. You're good. Forgiveness of sin. Newness of life. Your nature that you can't change no matter how good you are or how bad you are. Yeah, he actually helps your intrinsic brokenness, helplessness be made new in Christ. And he gives you his Holy Spirit and you're his temple now. What an amazing, beautiful reality. So what do we need, brothers and sisters? We need Jesus. We need to treasure Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, submit to Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, hey, on this rock, on the profession that Jesus is the Christ, that's, that's what the church is going to be built on. So why do we gather? Why do we have community? Why do we love each other? Why do we sing and pray? Why do we want to be built up in holiness for Jesus' fame? For the good and renown of his name. And in gratitude for what he's done. The magnitude of what he installed here as a baby. We're going to see more to come. Let's pray and ask him to, to help us. God, thank you that you are a saving God. God, thank you that you're a God that came as our substitute and our scapegoat. God, thank you that you're our temple. Thank you that you're our high priest. Thank you that you are our once for all sacrifice. God, thank you that on the tiresome days, may you remind us graciously that we do not have to do to be made righteous, that you did it all. God, may that not stall or hinder a love for holiness and right walking before you. God, may we treasure and revel in the beauty that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not just people that need fulfillment or need to feel better about themselves or need better self-esteem or need freedom from debilitating passions. That God, you came to deliver us from our deepest need, which is the, the nature of sin, which in essence is woven into us because of the fall of our father Adam. God, thank you for redeeming a people. God, thank you for your great love for sinners. Thank you for the mercy you show in the cross of Christ. God, we pray that many would be added to your church. That many would know the redemption that is in Jesus, as Anna shouted. God, that many would know the light to the Gentiles, as Simeon spoke of that we would know why you're good news, that we would know why you're saving. God, thank you for not coming to us and offering Band-Aids or reconstructive surgery. Thank you for offering complete, brand new life, that we were dead and we're alive. God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, may we enjoy your sacrifice. May we celebrate and remember the weight of your blood that was shed and your body that was broken. 
to ransom us and rescue us and reconcile us to yourself. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.